All right, everybody. We're going to start getting started. That's a bad sentence to get started on a unit on languages. Uh, in honor of that we're going over some original languages, let me ask this thought-provoking language question. How's everybody doing on Wordle? Yeah. I, did everybody get proxy? Yeah? Yeah? Good. And robot double vowels? Come on. That's like in, you know, interrupting somebody in the middle of their golf backswing. Uh, it's just like, come on, I got a process here. Uh, anyway, so anyway, hopefully that launches us into this. But let me try to give a little bit of a, a living metaphor for how language works. Because I just want us to think as we go through this, what is even the point of language? What is even the point of speech? I think that's going to help us just think through translations, through what's happening with things there. So, uh, Matt, will you get me the thingamajigger? No, that's not what I was talking about. Can you get me the red thingamajigger? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Can you get me the red Tupperware? You don't know where it is? Can you get me the red Tupperware by my oven? All right, that's a little bit silly, but what is the point? Does anybody get what I was just trying to show there? Yeah, but like, what is the point of my language? What am I trying to get to, Matt? Translation, that's true. But particularly, what, what is happening in my brain that I need Matt to think about as well? Context, what do I mean? Uh, and, and particularly to use biblical language, I want to think that I have an image. I have an image I need Matt to be able to picture accurately with me so that I can make a request of him to actually go and do the thing that I want him to do. So my words are trying to get him to do something. They're moving him. It's a request. It's actually trying to instill an action. And it's actually through the proper image being implanted into his mind that that action actually takes proper effect. So, I mean, you can obviously see how much this is going to start tying around Christ if we wanted to, because Christ is the very image of God. He is the word of God. And so what we are doing in Scripture is trying to gain a proper image of God in Christ Jesus, and that is actually trying to do something to us. It's trying to move us, and however accurately we understand Christ from the Scriptures will move us in appropriate directions based on what the, test, the, the text is asking us so just as you're going through, remember, language and speech, we don't have a lot of time to, to dig into this, but it's a really helpful point. Just remember, the point of your speech is to try to get an image across. Remember that 2 Corinthians passage? Uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4 that we've been citing. No one knows the mind of a man except the spirit that is within him. And it's the spirit's job to draw out what the mind is conceiving and communicate that to another in such a way that it actually affects proper transformation and action. And that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about with why languages matter, why we're going to translate Bibles the way we do, why we use that in the church and the liturgies and everything as well. Anything we do with language is towards that end. And of course, again, Jesus Christ is going to be the, the end, the final point of all of that because he is the image. He is the word. So just as you even think about grammar and languages, just remember it's not grammar that holds God together. God holds grammar together. And that's just so fundamental that he actually is the, the banking deposit, kind of the, the background that actually holds it all, all things together in Christ, in, as Hebrews 1 will say. So I want to think a little bit of just about that uh, second point, just thinking briefly about a biblical kind of theology of languages. Where did they start? 
what's their trajectory, and then we're going to launch from there into thinking a little bit about uh, how that affects maybe translations and things like that and thinking about what we're doing. So can I get some volunteers to just help look up some of these passages briefly? Um, and uh, so Genesis 11, 1 through 9, who's got that? Kellen? Uh, will somebody look up 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 22? Yep, Garrett? Uh, will somebody look up Acts 2, 5 through 13? Yeah, thank you, he. Uh, and languages, uh, sorry, I don't need to read the point. Uh, will somebody look up just maybe a couple of these, Daniel 7, 13 through 14? Somebody got that? Claire? And Logan, if you want to get Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, and then let's just go for Revelation 7, 9 through 10 as well. Can somebody grab that? Thank you. Um, and then finally, one more, Acts 17, 16 through 18. Christian, great. So we're going to move through these and just hold on to them, put a finger in that, and as we get to your text, uh, we will read them. So just thinking briefly about Genesis 11, 1 through 9, uh, just a note today, I'm actually going to try to move through the teaching rather quickly because my goal is eventually to get us onto actually technology. Wow. Uh, and we're actually just going to try to do some communal reading, look at, at a tool that I think is helpful with original languages, try to see how it could help us get better interpretations um, so even as you're thinking through the lesson, if there's any passages that you've ever struggled with, or like, what does that kind of mean? Be thinking of those, because we might be able to go over those at the end, and hopefully we'll use that time well. Um, so Genesis 11, 1 through 9, will, will that please be read? Yeah, thank you, Kellen, for reading that. Um, so, I mean, just a basic point there, and this will uh, parlay into kind of point A, is that languages are here in the Bible initially installed as a form of judgment on man's pride. Uh, that it's amazing, actually. It's actually their unification in language that allows them to be able to propose and then do, remember what we were talking about? If you can accurately convey images, you can actually affect quite a bit of action. And so it seems the Lord has great regard for what mankind is going to be able to accomplish as long as they have this one language. And if it's used in service of their own pride and their own name, he actually is not pleased with that. And so languages are just introduced biblically actually as a form of judgment uh, to scatter them, to actually uh, allow the Lord to humble mankind so that then his will would be done and his mission will start to be carried out. And so that's just really important for even thinking, what's the introduction to languages in the Bible? It's this. And, and if somebody will read uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 22, it'll reinforce this point.
Yeah, so Paul here, thank you for reading that, Garrett, um, is basically making a point about how in the church there's these tongues and there's this prophecy being used. And he actually cites Isaiah 28, 11. That's the Old Testament backdrop. I put it there if you want to look at that up later. And he's talking about how the Lord, when Israel is hard-hearted, they're resisting his plan, right? What's the sign of judgment? They're actually going to hear God's praises being sung in a tongue not their own. And that's actually one of the ways they actually are going to feel some of God's judgment and hardening uh, upon Israel. And then he says, tongues then are not a sign for unbeliever, or for believers, but for unbelievers. Sorry, I just said that backwards. T- tongues are not a sign for believers, but unbelievers. Whereas prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. And so you get there again. That's why we're actually not supposed to speak in tongues. And, and I mean, this could get into a whole conversation. But if we did speak in tongues, we have to translate it. That's one clear application of Paul. It should be translated because it's not edifying to the body if it's left in a foreign tongue, not unifying, actually, the whole congregation, not bringing people together. Languages are a divisive um, kind of form of judgment, and we're not to have that be a dividing barrier between us. And so whatever our applications and our interpretations of that passage would be, one thing that we have to see is that that's true about languages again. But then... This leads us to a problem because people must hear to believe, right? Romans 10, 14 is going to say that. How can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if someone does not preach? And how can they preach if they are not sent, right? We hear that passage a lot. It's, it's a great passage. It's a true passage. So people must hear, and they must hear in an intelligible way, as we've said. That leads us to Acts 2, 5 through 13. Will somebody read that, please? Yeah, so um, thank you for reading that, We This is just a great passage about, this is oftentimes called the reverse of Babel, uh, kind of biblically and theologically. It is the time where, uh, and it's not necessarily, again, a a restoring of everyone speaking the same language, but it's a reverse of Babel in that God's praises are being understood in all the different tongues. You hear them saying, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? But how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then they list off, all these tribes and all these places, and they are amazed in verse um, 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's such a cool moment in the Bible that people uh, who previously may have had language barriers or may have not understood God very well are hearing in their own tongues in perhaps the most intelligible way they've ever heard of God, the mighty works of Yahweh. And this is God starting to draw together in Christ Jesus a people uh, who's no longer as divided by language as they once were. And that leads us to our last point. Languages actually unified, not again languages unified in the sense that languages are destroyed, 
uh, at least definitely not in, in the time between Christ's incarnation and his return, it's not that they're destroyed, but language is unified in praise of God is actually proof of the Messiah. So uh, can people just read off Daniel 7, 13, like all three of those passages, um, Daniel, Matthew, and Revelation, please. Amen. So we actually see, again, the Lord in an amazing way is not uh, glorified, again, by necessarily destroying languages. It's actually by unifying languages and peoples and tribes and nations in praise to him. This is actually proof that his Messiah has come. So Daniel 7, uh, that's where the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, right? And all authority is given to him, it said. Why? So that people of every tribe and tongue and nation uh, can actually serve him. Which then leads us into Matthew 28, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. That's Daniel, right? That's the Son of Man. And if you ever think about, why did Jesus go up on a cloud? Well, Daniel 7, he's coming on the clouds of heaven before Yahweh to be presented with the kingdom that he has earned through his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross, through his resurrection, through his perfection. He is being granted all dominion over everything. And that's so that people from all, t uh, all places, all places, tongues, all tribes can now come and kneel before him, confess him as Lord, and that God has raised him from the dead, and they can be saved. And you can do that in whatever tongue you want. That's the amazing thing. If you can hear of the gospel, you can respond in that very same tongue you've heard it in, and Jesus saves. And that's what we're all called to do, is to hear the gospel and respond, uh, which will lead us again into Bible translations in just a second. Uh, but then you get to Revelation 7, 9 through 10 again, where the eschaton, the fulfillment of all things, will be when there are no more uh, divisions, but everyone is unifying God, uh, or unified in praise around God's throne in Revelation. And that actually leads us to one last point, in that the time in between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the time where he will return, uh, I want to make this point, that la the language of Christ actually is now the new Babel, and you'll see that actually that's spelled a little bit differently. But if, if we can read Acts 17, that'd be helpful.
Amen. I, I love that translation choice. What is this babbler? You know, you could literally like translate that as seed picker or something like that. But I actually think that they're understanding a biblical theological theme and kind of actually like subtly and, and cleverly tying into this babble motif, you know, since Acts 2 is reversing that. But what is he babbling about? At the end of verse 18, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they go, what's this babbler on about? So that now what we're divided about as people in the world is no longer our different tongues, our different languages, our different tribes. The language of Christ and the resurrection is actually now going to be the kind of language that divides people. And that's what we're seeing with Paul. He's trying to reason with them, but reason won't overcome that language difference alone. And so uh, that's, that's just a point to make. When we live, what is going to divide us? And even as we make interpretive choices and as we work in the church, uh, that, that should be a hallmark of what we're looking for. If we are coming together around Scripture genuinely and charitably and in love, it should be drawing us together in praise around God, and it should be unifying us. So if our interpretive choices are leading us towards division, towards slander, towards biting and devouring one another, we have to ask ourselves, um, are we really doing good translation work? Are we really doing good interpretive work? Because that's not the point of the scriptures, is to bring us to that point. It's actually to bring us to praise around, around God's throne uh, for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And we should tether our things to those, those things of first importance, like Jesus, the resurrection, and, uh, and come together in, in hope and faith and love. Uh, it's not to say there aren't ever divides. There obviously are. There is a kind of babble that emerges sometimes as we communicate. But... Um, Let's, let's not go there too quickly or think that that's a good fruit, um, especially between other brothers and sisters. Uh, if you're having tr- trouble with brothers and sisters in Christ and, and interpreting the Bible is leading towards divisive feelings between you all, I mean, we just have to take a step back and wonder what is actually happening here. Um, and that's some good reflection because that's the point of language is to draw us together around Christ Jesus. Um, so I want that to, to kind of then go into point three. Um, we'll keep moving because I want to I get us to actually applying this. Um, so translation choices. If that's all true, then when we think about translation choices, we basically have two for the Bible. And so as you're holding Bibles, what kinds of, of uh, translations do we have out in the room right now? ESV. All right. Represented. NIV. Great. Any others? Christian Standard Bible. It's the standard for all Christians. Uh, it's a great translation. Really, it is. Uh, so we got three translations. Any others? Any King James or any NASB? Or Yeah? Okay. Maybe we have, uh, so maybe we have four or five translations in the room. Uh, which one of them is right? Anybody want to take a, take a side? And should we get into an argument, divide the room up? I'm kidding. I just said let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> don't turn to politics, Josh says. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people would argue that the King James only is correct. Um, yeah, we, we, I don't think we would probably find a lot. Uh, I, hopefully we would say that there's more to think about. But why? Why is, do we not just have one standard English translation? Well, because there's actually different methodologies and philosophies on translating. And generally they break down into two categories. There is thought-for-thought translations... And then there is word-for-word translations. So you might think about thought-for-thought translations as kind of being on a spectrum from maybe the New Living Translation, the NLT, if you've ever heard of that, 
to kind of maybe something like the NIV or CSV kind of in there towards the ESV. And the ESV may be kind of, and the CSV a little bit. And again, it's a spectrum. It's hard sometimes to place translations perfectly here, but the CSV and ESV may start to be a pivot point where it starts to become more word for word. And what that means is that you're trying to preserve uh, really the legitimate order of wording and sentence structure from the Hebrew or Greek, even if it's going to feel really wooden or foreign in its sound, um, because you're trying to kind of provide that access. The thought for thought, on the other hand, uh, is kind of, and, and they're both going to have their strengths and weaknesses. We'll talk about this. It's actually trying to go toward, more towards the idea of image as language, um, that it's trying to convey the actual thought, the actual image that the text is trying to convey and make it most accessible to a reader by using corresponding language to make that just most accessible. So uh, here's a couple good things and, and bad things about each of those. Uh, and they actually kind of are just inverses of each other. So they're actually helpful. It, you know, Really, we can accept a, a lot of translations because they could actually play really well off of each other side by side. So for example, a thought for thought translation may be actually really good for reading with unbelievers or with maybe uh, new believers, you know, you may think about that image that sometimes scripture, we just need milk when we're young. We don't necessarily need uh, the same kind of food uh, when we're just trying to get the basic story and thrust of the gospel down. Uh, so for an ex example, you know, if you ever think of 1 John 2, 2, uh, there he says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Who knows what the word propitiation means? Okay, we've got some idea of it. Uh, but how often, how many of you use propitiation in the last month in your language, like when talking with others? Nobody? Okay. So propitiation is a kind of foreign word. That doesn't mean it's a bad word. But it's kind of foreign, whereas something like the NIV or CSB may just say that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How many of us have used that kind of language in the last month? Okay, there's a few more hands. So you might see where somebody who is coming to the Bible for the first time may be just as helped by understanding Jesus as the atoning sacrifice as the word propitiation. Uh, we, we may not need to put that word in front of them right away for them to get the general thrust of what's being communicated in 1 John 2. They may understand, Jesus can save me. Right? With an unbeliever, if that's what they get from that verse, that's wonderful. And so it may be that a, a, an NIV or a CSB or, or, or even an NLT uh, could be a great translation choice to give to those who really just need milk and just need the basic storyline of the gospel put in front of them. Uh, where this is going to stumble, and you'll kind of see how this actually uh, plays off the good in the next section, is on intertextuality. Um, and we'll get an example of this with Psalm 2, but essentially because it's not preserving the language always, uh, so... We'll get into this with Psalm 2. I'm going to save the example. But just because it's not preserving ex like words in their context, maybe evoking slightly different kind of images or, or context, that could change it, but it could eliminate ability to connect Old Testament passages to New Testament passages. That could be really helpful as we get, want to go further and deeper in our discipleship, as we want to go further and deeper in reading the Bible. And so that's actually the good part of word-for-word -word translations, is you're going to get repeating repeating phrases, you're going to get repeating words, and you're going to actually start to hear that, and you're going to go, huh, I'm actually picking up, there's kind of a repetitiveness Christian talked about with John 6, right, that bread of life, 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 bread, life, bread, right, and, and if there's any particular way Jesus is uttering that, or there's a structure to sentences, that could be helpful eventually too, 
not just get on a basic level, right? You could read in a, a, a thought for thought translation and walk away going, yeah, Jesus is the bread of life. But maybe there's some depth in John 6 that eventually we want to get to. And a word for word translation may offer some more insight into what's happening, into Jesus' teaching. Um, the bad side of this, again, it's kind of the inverse of, of how speech functions. So sometimes it fails to understand speech and can even misrepresent God or Christ if we're not careful. So this actually comes courtesy of Logan. Uh, was is it Ethiopia? Is that right? So in Ethiopia, there's the verse right in Revelation. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and eat with him. Uh, does anybody know who knocks on doors in Ethiopia? I mean, I know Logan does. Maybe other people do. Who knocks on doors? Just take a guess. Government? No, that might be preferable. Thieves? Who said that? Oh, you've heard this story, haven't you? That's right, actually. Uh, the way they open the doors, is it like they kind of cluck or almost? like a <clears throat> They kind of clear their throat. You clear your throat outside the door if you're actually a friend. And somebody pokes their head out and they'll say, oh, yeah, of course, come in. Thieves are the ones that actually knock on door. They're kind of checking, apparently, to kind of see if anybody's there and if, and if they feel like they can break in or enter. So, wait, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If you say that without any awareness of how speech functions in a culture, what have you maybe just said about Jesus Christ? He might want to come in and rob you. <laughs> and that's not at all what's trying to be communicated there, right? So, again, this is just an awareness, and this is why we, we promote things with our missionaries when they train. We're like, they should probably have a decent understanding of how speech is functioning in a culture so that they don't just stumble into this. Like, somebody walks away, and they're like, oh, Jesus is a robber. Okay, thanks for telling me. And they walk away, and you have no idea what you've just communicated. Um, so sometimes when we're translating the Bible, word for word can be really faithful to the Hebrew and the Greek, but bad for helping them gain a proper image of who Christ is. And therefore, who God is. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, any quick questions on what we've taught on before we go into inerrancy and then go over the languages briefly? Yeah, Christian. Yeah, I mean... You're so it's being asked, are there any thoughts about presuppositions of how that's affecting the work? I mean, yeah, I, I think we talked a little bit about presuppositions in, I think, Andrew's class. Um, there's always the danger that uh, you have poorly warped thoughts and images in your own head already about who God is and Christ is, and those can be maybe culturally construed or something like that. I think that's why generally, um, you know, it's better to do translation, again, as we've kind of talked about, as the church. And reading uh, the Bible, understanding the Bible throughout history, understanding the gospel, how it's been presented faithfully and accurately, how it is summed up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if somebody comes and it's a translation by one man, I'm a little bit more skeptical of that work. Um, uh, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad. But I, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. Whereas if it's kind of a more uh, ecumenical, if it's a more like, there's a lot of churches that we trust preach the gospel and they've come together and they've presented a translation choice. Uh, that I think holds a lot more authority and weight and, and avoids those presuppositions because it's kind of already been funneled through, I think, um, the spirit's oversight of those people humbling themselves before God trying to accurately convey the, the text. Does that answer the, the question?
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Christian's bringing up even gender-specific examples. Um, yeah, and sometimes that can actually. So there are actually times where, for example, in the CSB, that's a good, that's a good call out. And sometimes they're very even noble presuppositions generally. So uh, in the CSB, you'll notice that they'll take the word brothers and they'll often go and they'll say brothers and sisters. Um, uh, so in Matthew 5, for example, when Jesus is teaching on anger and murder, uh, he says, you know, if you're presenting something at the altar and your brother or sister has something against you, you'll go to him and make amends quickly. Uh, who can think of the Old Testament story that has brothers and sisters murdering each other? Well, that's not a brother and sister, though. Well, I'm being cheeky, actually. Justin is actually right. I think that if you think about who's murdered each other because of their sacrifices at an altar, and if it's just you think about brothers, it is, I think, a Cain and Abel illusion. So because the CSB has a desire to try to be inclusive, and, and again, that's, there's no problem with that in many of their instances of using it, but in Matthew 5, for example, I think that because they use brother and sister, they actually evoke, uh, they actually lose some illusion, illusion power that Jesus is, is actually picking up on Cain and Abel as the example of anger leading to murder. Um, so that is an example, yeah. And again, noble presupposition, uh, maybe something lost. Um, yeah. So is that, is that, anybody have questions on that? Okay. All right, let's get into inerrancy and try to get through that. So inerrancy, just briefly, this is why the original languages are actually important and why we do eventually kind of need to go back to them because it is rooted in the original languages. So you'll see there, that's Article 10 of what's called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It's a, I mean, it's not quite got the same weight as something like the Nicene Council or something like that, but it was a large group of people coming together trying to articulate uh, what we think inerrancy means and so this is a helpful statement for thinking through what does kind of the larger church say about inerrancy. They would say that we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic, so that is kind of the original texts that the apostles or the prophets themselves penned, right? Uh, text of scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that the copies and translations of scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. So if that's true, the autographic text is actually where inerrancy is located, then there is always going to be some sense of when we get into interpretive conflicts, what language, kind of what, where will we turn to to try to settle or resolve those discussions? Uh, sometimes that can happen in our own language, but Sometimes it's going to actually go, we need to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew. And that means we're going to probably need to have some working knowledges of how these languages function. Um, before we get into the languages and how they function, I do just want to note that there is, as we, we say in that article, in the providence of God, this can be ascertained, meaning can be ascertained from the available manuscripts with great accuracy. I want to encourage you all, you'll hear like, it's like Bart Ehrman is like a name you'll sometimes hear who says, like, we've lost this, the, the autographic texts uh, through the transmission of, of the documents over thousands of years and all the scribal errors. It's just lost to us. We can't get back to it. Um, you know, if that claim is true, we would lose all of history, essentially, uh, through to a certain point. So, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars. Does anybody know how many manuscripts are available of that in history? I'm pulling all this from F.F. Bruce, if any of you ever want to go look it up. but Five? That's actually a little low. It's 9 to 10. 
nine to ten manuscripts. And the first one that we have that's preserved is 900 years later than Caesar. Uh, history of Thucydides. Uh, anybody want to take a guess at how many manuscripts that rely? That's a 400 BC historian or so, I, I believe, if I have him correctly. How many manuscripts do you think we have of him? 15? That's a little high. Six? No, uh, w those are all in the ballpark, but eight. And actually, the first one that we have left to us that is, you know, is 1,500 years later. Uh, but the Bible, on the other hand, <laughs> has 5,800 partial or full Greek manuscripts. Uh, and then there's 19,000 partial or full manuscripts of things, of manuscripts in Latin or Syriac or Coptic or a number of other languages. Uh, and those are, some of the earliest ones are 100 to 200 years later that we have found. So, again, just in terms of historical, I mean, if the Bible's not a true book, if it's not a historically valid book, there's just nothing from the ancient world that is. Uh, it's as valid as anything. And so even just to, to highlight the irony of somebody like Ehrman's proposal, right? He's saying, we actually don't know what's in the Bible because of all these manuscripts and all the scribal errors and everything like that. Uh, which is actually funny because it's only because we have such an abundance of material that that claim even is valid. So he's like, we have too many, we have too many manuscripts. Um, and there's something to work through there. There's some genuineness to that question. But at the same time, it's like, we have so many manuscripts. So if you have 20,000 documents and you've got scribal errors in 500 of them, but 19,500 of them all say the same thing, like, statistically, that's actually a decent sample size. And you can start to go, like, oh, there's some consensus. Okay, all right. And as we work through, they're available. So, again, just to go back to Article 10, in the providence of God, these autographic texts, we believe, have been made available to us with great accuracy. And I just want to say that just to bolster your confidence in the word, that Christians have reasons for believing the Bible has come to us faithfully and accurately. And if you hear that criticism about scribal transmission and everything, just know that. <laughs> There's actually great reasons to believe it's come to us very accurately. All right, so let's go through the Hebrew language um, and uh, just go through some Hebrew particulars. Um, so one of the things to know, and we'll kind of see this a little bit in Blue Letter Bible, is that um, Hebrew rests on essentially kind of these three-letter kind of core words. They're called shoreshes. Um, and essentially, a lot of other words will deviate based off of kind of a root word. So if you think of a tree, the shoresh is kind of like a trunk. And then there's a bunch of words that kind of branch off from there. And so why is this important? Well, you can actually see one uh, example is actually the root between like the word glory and weight, for example, are actually uh, based off the same three-letter word. And so sometimes when the Bible will actually, say, accuse people of... of um, reveling in like their fatness or something like that. I mean, yeah, we could go and we could talk about body stewardship or something like that, and that could be appropriate. But actually, one of the things the Bible's doing biblically, theologically, is talking about these people who in their gluttony are actually despising God and providing themselves with their own comfort, their own fullness and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, there could be derivative like ideas of how we should steward our bodies based on that. But the reason that the Bible may accuse people and use the word for weight or fatness or something like that is not so much uh, just because that's some demarcation, but because of how it's playing against the word for glory and God's glory and his weight, his majesty, his goodness, his glory. Um, and so when you're reading those words, just keep those in mind. Those are related words. 
So an example of that is, you know, when the glory of God departs from Israel in 1 Samuel 5, Eli falls back on his chair, and then it adds in this weird comment about, like, for he was very heavy. That's actually a comment, not so much on his weight. It is, but it's primarily actually a comment on, like, the glory of the priests. They've been stealing. They've been getting lazy. They have not been giving God the glory and training the people to love the Lord as they should. And so there's this contrast being played. Uh, that when we read that, we just have to read that with sensitive and knowledgeable eyes of how those words are, are playing off of each other. Um, so let's just do a couple examples of where Hebrew is um, like helpful to know. So 1 Samuel one twenty four. if everybody just turn there real quick. This is a great example. So there's a couple instances here of sometimes where as you're reading your Bible, if you're thinking, huh, this is weird, um, there's a couple instances. This one is where sentences make almost, uh, they, they're just weird. Um, so in First Samuel one twenty four, it says, And when she had weaned him, she, this being Samuel, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Anybody got any issues with that last sentence? And the child was young. What? What child isn't young? Doesn't that feel kind of redundant? The child was young. I mean, when you're reading that, if you're reading slowly, that could actually be a time where you go, like, why did they just clarify that? Well, in the Hebrew, actually, it says, and na'ar, na'ar. Two words repeat each other right there. Na'ar can mean child. It can also mean servant. And if you actually read this in 1 Samuel, there's a problem with the servants of God. Eli's sons, particularly, who are bad servants, which is also related to the word for children. So they're not only bad servants, they're bad children, and that's why Eli's house is about to be cut off. Whereas Samuel is going, he's leaving his mother, and he's becoming, no, not a child, but a servant. So I think this should be translated, and the child became a servant, right? So if you're reading that, and you're just going, and the child was young, and you want to go, that's odd. Um, You know, that's a time where you can try to look that up. And... um, yeah, well, we're looking at Psalm 2. I'm going to start setting this up because I can show these on the screen actually now. So in Psalm 2, if we turn there, uh, who can tell me in Psalm 2.1 what the intertextual note is between that and Psalm 1? Somebody want to read Psalm 2.1 real quick for us? Yeah, why do the peoples rage and the nations plot in vain? What is the intertextual con- uh, connection between that and Psalm 1? Intertextuality. Great question, Scott. That is where words or phrases are picking up on previous words or phrases from other chapters or books of the Bible, and it's trying to evoke that image, right? It's trying to say, I'm building on theology previously inherited from a previous biblical work in my own theology, essentially. So when we're saying that, that's a good question. What in Psalm 2.1 is evoking a similar word or phrase from Psalm 1? Anybody see it? It's all right if you don't. The point, the point is this is actually supposed to be a little confusing. Let's see if this pulls up. And I'm sorry, if any of you are having trouble seeing, I'll try to be out of your way. All right, so Psalm 1, right? This man who's blessed, what does he do? Somebody yell it out. He delights in the law of the Lord, and 
What does he do then? He meditates day and night. So this word in Hebrew, and this is Blue Letter Bible, and I'll give a little bit more introduction to this in a second after we work through the examples. He meditates. Uh, is that, is, can everybody see that? Do I need to pull it back or zoom in? Okay. On, huh? Well, here. Is that, is that any, oh, I don't know what just happened. There we go. Uh, okay. And on it, he meditates day and night. So this word here is haga, or I don't know how to pronounce it, to be honest, but whatever. Uh, it's haga. So if you ever want to, this is how I kind of use the original languages, because I honestly don't speak Hebrew or Greek super well, so I fake a lot of it. Um, but you can actually use a tool like this, helpfully. So this word, when we look it up, Psalm 1-2, but in his delight, in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Hmm. So this word is used in Psalm 2-1. Let's go look at this. Where is this word used? Anybody see it? Devising. Interesting. So now we actually have just seen that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are linked by this word. So the blessed man is actually meditating on the law of the Lord. But the nations are actually meditating on a plan to usurp Yahweh. So when he says that the people, why do the people's, uh, why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? That plotting is the same kind of action as the meditation of the blessed man. And as you start to unfold that, you're going to start seeing there's a lot of allusions to Psalm 1 and 2 that start to come in. But that would, normally if you read this in Hebrew, you would immediately pick up and say, Psalm 2 is actually talking about a little bit more the way of the wicked. What, what kind of meditations do they have against Yahweh. Uh, and, and we can read further in Psalm 2 and we can find that out. So that's a time where, you know, looking up a little bit of Hebrew can actually help you start to see, I should think of Psalm 1 and 2 as a fairly unified kind of set of Psalms. And that's helpful. Um, let's briefly move on to Aramaic. Um, we're actually not going to look at any examples, but it's just worth noting there are actually three biblical languages in the Bible. There's, there's Hebrew, there's Greek, those are the two dominant ones, but actually there's Aramaic, which is a hefty dose of, of Daniel is in Aramaic, um, as well as some portions of, uh, is it Ezra Christian? Is that right? Ezra is in partly Aramaic, as well as some of the, uh, as well as our Lord, presumably, uh, very likely, almost certainly spoke Aramaic. So Jesus spoke Aramaic, and you'll see in like Mark, for example, Mark 7, 34, it'll actually translate phrases, and it'll say, this is what this means in Aramaic. So even our very first, you know, kind of gospel accounts are actually all coming out of Aramaic and making translation choices about what our Lord said that we believe are faithful. Um, a couple just notes on this. One of the biggest ones is that you'll find often these texts are rooted around the time of the exile, Daniel, Ezra, uh, those kind of instances. Um, even that Jesus spoke Aramaic, I mean, they're still kind of in exile with the Romans over them. Uh, and one of the things you'll, you'll note is there's actually, the divine name is never used in Aramaic. It's probably one of the most odd things. It may not be unique to Aramaic necessarily. It could just be a function of the exile that they feel separated. Uh, for example, Ezekiel's in mostly Hebrew, uh, but Ezekiel by himself like basically promotes Adonai as a name for God to be the third most used. He uses it like 200 times. If he didn't use it, it would be a fairly like small name in terms of, of God's names, but Ezekiel seems bent on making sure it gets remembered. Um, so there, but in exile, it is interesting. This language reveals something about they was a hesitancy to use the divine name um, while they were in Babylon. Um, and that's especially prominent in Aramaic. 
Um, yeah, and it was the language of, of Jesus as well. Um, so let's move on to Greek. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going because I want to actually get time to do some stuff together, and I know we're going to run out of time. So let's finish Greek, and then we can practice. So Greek particulars, um, just some things to know about, about Greek is it's an extensive vocabulary language, a lot of different words uh, for one word. So, for example, I mean, the common is, you know, one is love. How many words for love in Greek do you all know? Five? Okay, that's great. I mean, there, there's, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me, honestly. Greek has so many different words for one idea. So there's different manifestations of love, right? So you might know phileo, like which where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You may know agape, this kind of unconditional love you may have heard about, or eros, which is where we get our word for erotic, and you may think more intimate. So again, we've got three different words for love. How many words for love in the English language do we have? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a kind of a trick question. Uh, so, I mean, there may be other words that we could pull out, and we could be like, well, that's a variation of love, but we use love in a lot of different ways, and we use one word, and we just trust context to kind of do a lot of our work for us. So when you're making a translation choice from Greek to English, and you've got like four or five different words for, say, love or other words, um, yeah, you're going to have to figure out which version of, of love are we talking about, um, which if you ever want to listen to a great uh, podcast, D.A. Carson has one. Uh, you, you all should listen to this. It's called God is Love and He Doesn't Need Us, and it's wonderful, and he talks about the different ways that God can be said to ha- love people, the world, etc., and they're all true. <laughs> Um, anyway, if you want to look that up, it's helpful for understanding that. Uh, but let's look at a couple examples. So Matthew 7, for example. Uh, who can tell me what Matthew 7, 1 says? Does anybody know? Because it gets quoted at the church quite a bit. What does the world tell the church not to do? Anybody know? Yeah, don't judge. Where do they get that idea? Matthew 7, that's right. Great job, Kendall. Uh, Matthew 7, 1, right? Jesus says, do not judge, lest you be judged. And the world goes, don't you listen to Jesus? Well, okay, so if we get into Matthew 7, right, there's a couple different points just to make here quickly, right? This word for judge, uh, just if we just open this up, I don't have it already, uh, it's this word crino. Um, okay, well, like, let's look at this and just say, where else is this, this used? Um, Okay, Matthew 7, well, judge not that you be not judged, for the pronouncement you judge will be judged. Okay, that's there. Um, but wait, Matthew 19, when you sit on this glorious throne, you also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. So wait, there's an element of judgment. Let's just scroll down and just pick at random. Let's just go further into the, okay, God's going to judge people by no means. So that's talking about God, so that's not us, but let's see uh, if we go a little bit further. Um, Okay, here's 1 Corinthians uses. Uh, here's Paul, I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So, I mean, what is one thing we can say about this word, just based on just quickly perusing where else this is used in the New Testament? I mean, does it mean we never judge? How do you know that? Because, yeah, yeah, it's used in other places to tell people, you should go ahead and judge. So what do we have a question of? What, what do we need to start asking ourselves? What kind of judgment are we talking about? What are we judging? How are we judging? How is this judgment being used in this passage, right? And so we can actually start to just 
get a sense that in the Greek, if we start reading this, you know, if we read Matthew and we read, do not, you know, krino, you know, but then in 1 Corinthians, you read that word again, you're like, wait, okay, I had thought at some point that we were never supposed to judge, but now I've got to ask myself, there's some kind of tension here in the command, and there must be some kind of limitation or acceptable context within which the command makes sense. Um, and just to encourage you all, like, if you don't really know Greek or anything like that, I mean, you can also just get this out of reading the rest of Matthew 7. Because uh, in Matthew 7, he says, don't be judged lest you be judged, for with the portion you pour out, you'll receive. But then the next verse, he's like, don't cast your pearls before pigs. What does that imply? <laughs> a kind of judgment, for sure. I mean, a Jew saying somebody's a pig is, yeah, anyway, we'll leave it there. Um, but then later, he's going to say, you'll know a tree by its fruit. What does that imply? Judging. Yeah, so even if you don't know Greek, a larger reading of Matthew 7 will tell you there's some kind of judgment Jesus really does want us to avoid, and is this kind of final condemnatory judgment. Um, it, it is this kind of harsh, merciless. He's going to get into that in Matthew 18, right? Bless, and he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And Matthew 18 is going to pick up on those who've been forgiven know how to forgive other servants, right? And so if you have no sense of forgiveness, if you have no sense of kindness, of charity, of mercy... Yeah, I mean, God will return that to you. Um, watch out, because the king who forgives much to the servant, when he can't show forgiveness to the next, the king hears about that and hauls him away to debtor's prison until he pays off every cent of his crime and his debt. So there's a real lesson to be learned there, and we could go further and deeper, but that's just an example of how this is a tool I use, and I start seeing there must be a little bit more than this simplistic message that the world gives us. Um, but then let's look just finally... And let's just end with John 3, and then be thinking of texts if you want to like look up anything. I'm, I'm an open book. Um, John 3.16. So as you go through John 3, right? sometimes people will be like, the Gospels never made a claim that Jesus is, for example, divine. Well, actually, I think the Greek makes it very abundantly clear Jesus is divine. Uh, so in, in John 3.16, right, this word here is only begotten son. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a gospel call. What is this only begotten? It's this word monogenes. Who just from our English could take a guess at what that means? Single origin. Or, yeah, I mean, what, what words do you think of with genes? You could think of Genesis. And what is, like, the point of Genesis? I mean, origins or what? Beginnings. Yeah, I mean, even what are other variant words in English that we actually get that sound kind of like genes? Genetics, genes. Yeah, so this son who seems to have an only nature and only kind of similarity to God is being proclaimed here. Well, when we look this word up, you know, we start to see, right, okay, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Wait, but it's here in John 1.18. Let's go find that word. <clears throat> right, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, this monogenes God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I mean, Jesus Christ is literally the exegetical outworking of God because he is the only begotten God. So, I mean, when you just start seeing those textual connections, you're like, that, I don't know. To me, that sounds pretty divine. Um, and, of course, you got John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But this is just another way. This is another text you can go to and be like, the Greek is, it sounds like it's making a fairly audacious claim, um, but a true claim. But then there's an, one other connection, because if you're reading John, you go, who is in the bosom, right? Uh, Scott hates this word, so I won't say it too many times. Uh, 
it's this word for kolpos. Um, and a lot of you in your translations will say, who has been at the Father's side, or something like that. What, you, anyway. You said it to me one time. I just have a weird memory. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm slandering Scott. Please, please forgive me. Uh, Scott loves, no, I'm not going to finish that sentence. Um, this is on a podcast. Please edit this later. Uh, okay. Uh, so is in the bosom, when you actually look up this word for kolpos, it's interesting because this just shows the intimacy of Jesus and how he gathers us to himself, right? Who's at the Father's side. The only other time in John's gospel, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And this word, as you can guess, for side, is the same word for kolpos. So this disciple who... Jesus was at the Father's side. By the time he's discoursing with the disciples as friends in John 13, these disciples are being closely held by his side, in his bosom, gathered up like sheep to his breast. And, and when Jesus starts to say, if you abide in me, you know, my Father will abide in you. And like, there's all this communication of life in God through Christ. And you just get this such rich imagery when you can start making these textual connections about John has come to dwell with Jesus the way he as the son of God has dwelt with the father. And that's, that's, what, that's what Christ promises when he says you will have life and life abundantly. He says the father has given me life in myself that I may give it to others. And you see John here has found that life. And when we talked about John's purpose statement, right, a couple weeks ago in John 20, uh, he says, I write these things that you might believe in Jesus Christ and believing in him that you may find life. So, you know, you just get these rich, uh, inclusions and there's a reason John only uses this word twice you better believe like he could have used side or something like that uh, a lot more times but he uses this word twice in the whole book and he means to say something by it okay um, any quick questions over anything we've gone over um, otherwise if not I'd love to just say uh, I have a couple examples I can go through but do you have any like texts or pieces of scripture that you're like I honestly would love to just Think through, it's like, it's kind of perplexed me. I'm not sure I know exactly what that one's trying to say, and we can just take some stabs at trying to understand it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, so the question is kind of when do you start getting into some of these language studies and everything like that? I mean, I think you can go through kind of the process. You can do the larger reading of Matthew 7. You can kind of go, do I get a sense of this from what Jesus is saying in the rest of the book in the larger context? And if you don't, I mean, then, yeah, I would actually take it maybe next to discipleship. I would, I would look for older saints who may have more experience as well because I don't want to skip that step. I don't necessarily want us to all just run off and, and delve in, but, but there's experience, there's wisdom in the church. Um, and I would say, research the scriptures together. And then if there's still confusion there, if there's still a lack of explanation, um, or even if there's confusion or there is uncertainty, this is a really great place to go, well, let's go maybe just 
let's go search the scriptures together. And that's the point of the Bereans we brought up in week one, right? They said, are these things true? And they did this together. They came together, they read scripture, and they, you know, had people kind of expositing and coming to conclusions and certainty about what the text is saying. So I would say, yeah, I mean, do a little bit of a larger reading, see if it makes more sense in just a, a bit of a context. And then, yeah, search the scriptures. And part of that, I think, at that point will be, yeah, this is a great tool to pull up and see how is this word used in the rest of the New Testament. It even has Old Testament Septuagint uses, so you may see Old Testament allusions or backdrop, uh, and I would probably pull it in and then. Yeah. Logan? Oh, Matthew 5. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're, you're asking, and make, I want to make sure I understand the question. You're asking, how do we balance attention, say, with a Matthew 5, where there's maybe kind of the more inclusive gender language um, without kind of becoming skeptical? And, like, we actually trust that the scriptures are still, like... So, yeah, I mean, so much of this, to me, again, Paul is going to say, I, I want to remind you of things that are of first importance. And uh, that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day, and that he has been seen and witnessed and he's being testified to. So to some degree, what we want to say as a faithful translation is things that get that most right. If it is getting things of first importance, if it is actually trustworthily, trustworthily explaining the gospel, uh, then it's a valid translation on some level in my mind. Um, and, and that's actually in the Chicago, right? It says, we affirm the copies and translations of Scripture or the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. But, I mean, Luke 24, what is Jesus going to say? Scripture is all, the, the law and the prophets are all pointing towards me. And so as far as things faithfully represent Christ, so in Matthew 5, right, is the gospel compromised because we don't get a Cain and Abel illusion? No, I don't think we want to say that. I think that we might say it's a better reading of the text and we get more out of it if the Cain and Abel illusion is there. But is Jesus Christ compromised because we lost the illusion? That might be going a little bit further than I think we'd want to say. And so I think those are kind of the questions around, you know, how valid is this translation? So an example where I think you do start to get maybe word choices that we would want to start saying, I think we can do better. Uh, for example, it used to be common that um, especially in kind of this modernistic age, that you know, words like the virgin shall give birth and conceive a son. You know, people were uncomfortable with the virgin birth and modernity. And so they started changing that language to say the maiden shall give birth for a while. Well, you know, actually in the Apostles' Creed, like we actually confirm, uh, uh, like, you know, the church early on said that he was born, you know, of the virgin. Um, why would we change that to maiden? Like, that actually is starting to get to like language choices and uncomfortability with the divine nature of Jesus' incarnation that we may want to start saying, ooh, I don't like that as much because we're starting to actually maybe get uncomfortable with the, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its glory, in all of its divinity. And that's a time where I might want to push back on a translation and go, I, I think we can do better. Uh, does that help answer your question? Anybody else have follow-up questions on that? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just for the podcast real quick, Christian. Uh, Andrew's just pointing out that sometimes like if an allusion or something may just be offering support to the text, but the main idea is still accessible, even if it's a little bit of a weaker uh, allusion to that. Christian? Yeah, Christian's just making the point about the hermeneutical spiral. It's a book on the recommended reading, how uh, just reading the, the scriptures kind of has a process to it. Um, and we can think about, again, that image that I tried to offer. Sometimes Paul will say, you know, live on the, the milk that is the word. But other times he'll call people beyond kind of milk to like, in Hebrews, for example, more kind of solid food. Um, and yeah, so there's like, there, and that's even in relationship to kind of what he calls elementary doctrines. So there are certain things that we need to just get, and that's kind of like the basic milk upon which the newborn child of God in Christ Jesus needs to just get what it needs to just survive and, and, and grow into maturity. And as they get older, like a child, I mean, we might think they might start to eat more and more solid food because their body is able to intake it better, it can process it better, and it's helpful. Uh, it's more, you know, there may be more nutrients and everything in that more complex food. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's a, a, there's biblical imagery to support that. Um, uh, Scott. Yeah, yeah, Scott's asking, you know, with kind of ideas about textual criticism, uh, you know, manuscripts not coming to us faithfully over time. Uh, yeah, I mean, F.F. Bruce has one called Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? Um, that's a, a short and kind of easy read. I think he does some good work with that. Uh, if you want a, a great one, it goes into like a lot of um, depth, but C.E. Hill has a book called Who Chose the Gospels? Um, I think is a great piece of both rigorous academic work and faithful to show like these were not like a political struggle. Like some people will, will proclaim they really were the early church's bread. Um, uh, so, you know, things like that may be helpful. Um, obviously we have, uh, I'm trying to think if we have, I mean, I mean, really some of the 40 questions about interpreting the Bible, we'll go over a few of those. And so we'll have some articles on these things. Um, off the top of my head, those would be a couple places that I, I would point people towards, just that the early documents are, are reliable. Um, yeah, I don't know.
I think so. I, at least we have in the past. I, I've seen it at sometimes on the there. But why trust the Bible? Uh, Andrew's pointing out that's a good resource. Um, yeah. Is that helpful? Okay. What? Okay. Um, does anybody have so? Uh, does anybody have any questions about a text or anything? I want to do one example if nobody has has one, just about where doing this can offer, I think, a little bit more like complex and rich reading. But does anybody have anything they want to go over? Because I'd love to take a stab at that. Okay, Kellen's shaking her head. So, all right. So here's one example where I, I actually I really love this. Um, Genesis six, right? Here we are at the beginning, and. Um, now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Who, who thinks they know what that violence is like? What's that look like? Huh? They're biting? Is that what somebody said? Slapping each other with fishes, maybe? No. Uh, I mean, just really, when you think about it, violence, what does that word evoke? Huh? War? Yeah. War? Absolute chaos, everything like that. What about Spider-Man? <laughs> So, so yeah, we have, like, pretty gruesome imageries. When we read violence, we're thinking people are walking around murdering each other. There's war. And to some degree, that's true. Who can take a guess at when the next time that word for violence is used in the Bible? Revelation. Okay. No. No. <laughs> and, and anything a little bit earlier than Revelation? All right. Let's, let's look at it. I think this will surprise you. Um, so this word for violence... Um, and again, just quickly, I mean, this, this just gives you some idea of the root word for the Hebrew, like we talked about those shoreshes. And if you're using this, you know, you can get a quotation of biblical usage and definitions. Um, I generally, you know, kind of skim through this, but then try to get down to where else is it used. Um, so the next time in a story setting is actually Sarah talking to Abraham. So who would have guessed, like just based on that word for violence, that Sarah would have expressed that. But Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong, the Hamas done to me, be upon you. Now that's, I think, an interesting use of the word violence that all of a sudden I think kind of fights a little bit against what we would have normally thought is the image of violence being done. We're thinking of wars, we're thinking of murder, and it's like, well, what's happening here? Sarah's being mocked, slandered, and Abraham's not protecting her. Now why might Abraham be doing violence to Sarah? What, what is prompting him to maybe actually not regard her and treat her well? Does anybody know the biblical story, what just happened? Hagar, right? Yep, and he just had a son with Hagar, Ishmael. So Abraham has just had a potential heir provided to him. And in that kind of sense, he has kind of an abundance, it seems like, a potential solution. And now he's not treating Sarah with protection, with regard. And she is actually claiming he's doing violence to her. Now, I think in especially a covenantal kind of context, in an image of God context, she's saying, I'm not being regarded, I'm not being offered the kinds of things that I should be as a partner in this covenant with you, right? Woman was placed in the garden to help man be fruitful and multiply and was to be respected, was to be cherished, was to be honored as one who also was, had the dignity of the image of God. And she's not being, protect, that's not being protected for her. And she's claiming violence is actually being done to her. And the reason I, I mentioned the word abundance is just because when we look up this word, there are other times where this word comes up in Hebrew. And, uh, for example, I'm trying to, 
It, like sometimes it is physical violence, just to be clear. But other times, um, you know, uh, here, I'm just going to go to the Malachi one because that's one that I think is really earned. It's not Malachi. Where is it? I'm forgetting. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Micah 6.12. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. If you were to look through this, there's actually a number of times where this word for violence is attached to prosperity and wealth. And people who have prosperity and who have feel like they have abundance are no longer, in, no longer taking care of those without. And in fact, they actually may be stealing. So like in the Bible, Proverbs will actually say like unjust scales or something like that or an abomination, a similar word used for even like same-sex relationships. I mean, think about the gravity placed on, on that. And so he's kind of making this argument that this kind of prosperity can lead to us disregarding our fellow image bearers and letting violence be done to them and perhaps even perpetrating the violence. And so people are kind of just going around, and you can even think how this starts to apply, all those little sniping comments we make at each other, all those times where we just take a little bit and say, it doesn't matter. Well, that could actually be a way that everybody's being robbed little by little, day by day, until they just have nothing left although some are prospering. But those people in their prosperity aren't protecting those without abundance. They're not kind. They're actually doing what the Bible seems to be calling a kind of violence against others. And so we can start to think, well, okay, Genesis 6 at first glance, I don't think I'm part of the violent. I don't think, but as we start to dig in, I may be. (laughs) I may be part of the violent easily. And you can even think about how Galatians 5, right? Paul says, you know, you're supposed to love one another, but if you keep biting and devouring one another, you shall be consumed. That biting, devouring one another, that is just, that's a violence that I think Genesis 6 uh, kind of reinforces. Um, so anyway, that was just an interesting example as I was digging into that and kind of uh, looking through that. I was like, this word for violence is more complex and interesting than just everybody running around murdering one another, like we may think about. And it may call us to Consider our own prosperity, our own abundance, and ask, what am I doing with that? And how am I regarding my fellow image bearers? Uh, Am I like Abraham, who's letting Sarah be mocked and torn to pieces by the cruel words of another? Or do I actually still regard her as worthy of being regarded as a covenant partner with me, to be honored and protected and cared for? Um, yeah, anyway, we're at 1015. Um, unless, if there's final questions, you can come up and ask me afterwards. Let me pray, and we'll close. Uh, Lord, we just uh, give you praise for your providence, um, that we do trust, Lord, as we've thought so many times, that your Bible has come to us faithfully, uh, Lord, that we can actually read it, and, uh, and that we can read it and, and find help in understanding it, Lord, and that the image of Jesus Christ, who is your very image, Lord, can be made known to us, We pray that above all else in our Bible reading, Lord, everything we do, all the ways we can get lost in in the weeds of translation, Lord, that it would always bring us back to Christ, who is your image and your word, and that he would drive us to do that which is right in your sight, and that in him we would find salvation. And we uh, just pray that your word will build us up and edify us in this way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.